Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore the curious case of the vampire bed. Yes, the vampire bed. And no, that isn't some kind of metaphor for a nightmare or a trick of the mind. This vampire bed is literally a vampire bed. It is a bed that is also a vampire. It is a soft and comfy rectangular piece of furniture, and it is also a blood-sucking creature of the night, the undead, who, as a rule, as we know from reading Bram Stoker's Dracula, prefer sleeping in coffins than beds, but for the sake of this episode, just go with it. It is a vampire bed. And so, to begin at the beginning. And I should begin with a very short and sweet shameless plug. Let's get it out of the way. But if you do enjoy this episode, it is just one of the many tales that feature in my shiny new book, Paranormal Cardiff. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. But back to this tale, this supposedly real-life tale, if you choose to believe it, is said to have taken place in the early 17th century in the capital of Wales, in Cardiff, in Cardiff. And it was during the reign of the witch-crazed James VI of Scotland, or James I of England, who was on the throne when a young family in Cardiff picked up what appeared to be the bargain of the century, or certainly the bargain of the day, at a bankruptcy sale. And that bargain was a bed. More specifically, a four-posted bedstead. And having listened to my introduction and having seen the title of this episode, this might very well be the vampire bed referred to, that piece of furniture that drinks your blood like Nos Feratu. And as you might have noticed there, thanks to Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, I'm unable to say the word Nosferatu without doing a terrible impersonation of Sir Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing, and who is, of course, like myself, a Port Talbot boy. Although in this case, he is playing a Dutch vampire hunter. And I was about to add that Anthony Hopkins played the best Van Helsing, but of course, Peter Cushing existed. So let's just say Anthony Hopkins was the best Welsh person to play Van Helsing. But anyway, moving on and back to this bed, this bed which may or may not be the vampire bed, the Nosferatu bed, which was placed in the best bedroom by its new owner. Now, the concept of a best bedroom might be unfamiliar to some listeners, maybe to some younger listeners, but people of a certain age might remember relatives having best bedrooms, even if they haven't got one themselves. But a best bedroom is where you put all the best furniture, all the best stuff, hence the name, and you kept it looking fantastic just in case somebody important popped by to spend the night just in case royalty happened to be walking through Cardiff and knock your door and ask if they can have a room for the night. The Queen or the King, in this case, I guess it would be King James, wouldn't it? King James fancies a night out in Cardiff and decides your house would be the best place to crash. That's why you need a best room. But no, really, the best room is there to impress your guests with, to show them how good a host you are, to effectively to show off with. And of course, there's a slight... 
irony there that, well, a slight waste, I should say, because all of the best things in your house do not get used. Because in your bedroom, in the, the, the second best bedroom, I guess you could call it, but in your bedroom, the mattress is rotting away, the bed is on wonky legs, it's creaking and squeaking and making a noise, and it's a death trap. And in the room just next door, there's this amazing, fantastic bed just going to waste. And that's exactly what happened in this case. They picked up this bargain, they picked up this wonderful bed, and it was put in their best bedroom. And all was well for some months, we are told. But one night, disaster struck, because the man of the house was away on business, and part of the floor in the bedroom he shared with his wife, their second best bedroom, became damaged, it became dangerous. So it was no longer the safest room for the wife to be staying in alone. There was a hole in the floor or whatever was wrong with it, whatever damage it had sustained. And more than that, she wasn't only concerned about her own safety anymore because the couple had had a child. There was a four-month-old baby also staying in that bedroom with them. So the lady of the house, along with that baby, decided to relocate temporarily until her husband returned into, you guessed it, the best bedroom. And that night, for the first time since it had come into their ownership, that bed was slept in. It was slept in by the woman and child, but the child was restless all night. It just couldn't settle. It cried and grumbled and rolled about and did whatever restless children do to show that they were not happy and they were wide awake. However, with this hole in the floor of the second best bedroom, they had no choice but to go back there for round two. And on the second night, things did not improve. In fact, they got much much worse. The little one was screaming violently in the dead of night. The mother was unable to pacify it. Nothing she could do could alleviate its pain. It was scared. It was fearful. It was in torment and nothing could be done to calm it down. The next day, she accepted defeat and called in some help. She called the doctor and explained her child was in terrible pain in the night and she had no idea what to do, what was causing it. And the doctor prescribed some medication that would help it to sleep. And as a result, on the third night, it did help a little bit. The baby was still not happy. It was still agitated, but it was a heck of a lot better than it had been the night before. So, the third night with the help of a little medication was by far the best night they'd had in that room. But sadly, it was going to be a short-lived respite because on the fourth night, the child was back to crying louder than ever. The mother could not pacify it. The medication did not pacify it. It screamed with a scream from the bottom of its soul, a blood-curdling howl that should not have emanated from a being so young and so new to the world. The mother gathered the child in her arms, did everything she could to calm it and the weeping did come to an end tragically it came to an end forever the child was dead 
And I should interrupt the story at this point and just point out that while this is a piece of folklore, it is a folk tale. And as such, how factually accurate these events are is, let's say it's open to debate how true this story might be. But nevertheless, even if the facts aren't exactly as they are recorded here, very often these stories are based on real events. They have their roots in some real tragedy. And while this tale, on the one hand, might be a work of fiction concocted by a fevered mind centuries ago, or on the other hand, it might be 100% true and is based on documented evidence, maybe it falls somewhere in between. And maybe a real-life tragedy did inspire these events, even if they didn't happen exactly as they are related. Which is something to bear in mind as we listen to the rest of the tale, because the child stopped crying. The mother discovered that it was dead in her arms. And on its neck was, to quote, a large mark with a red spot in the centre, through which blood was oozing. What a description. There was a large mark with a red spot in the centre, through which blood was oozing. And you don't need to be Van Helsing, you don't need to be Anthony Hopkins or Peter Cushing to understand what the implication of blood oozing out of the neck might suggest. But of course, the mother at the time was none the wiser. The doctor was summoned once more. And as you can imagine, he could do little to help or little to explain even what had happened. Yes, he confirmed the child was most definitely dead. He had no idea what this extraordinary mark was. And he made a rather, well, a deeply unpleasant comparison that I don't think doctors would make today when examining patients. But when describing this bloody oozing mark on the baby's neck, he said, It is just as though something had caught the child's throat and sucked the blood as one would suck an egg. It was just as though something had caught the child's throat and sucked the blood as one would suck an egg. And I don't know if anyone out there does still suck eggs nowadays, but that is where you make a small hole in the shell and suck it out. And that, according to the doctor, is what had happened to this child. Somebody had made a hole in the neck and sucked the blood, sucked the life force from it until it was entirely drained. All of which just left everyone baffled and confused, with the doctor unable to explain these events, with the family having no idea what went on in that bedroom. The case remained a mystery and time moved on. And it was eventually considered to be one of those life's unexplainable tragedies. God moves in mysterious ways, as they say. This was a tragedy. It was one they couldn't explain. And things did eventually return to some kind of normality. And the couple were blessed with a second child. And as a result, the best bedroom was needed once more. 
It hadn't been used since the death of the first child. The floor in the second best bedroom had been fixed and there had been no royal visitors. But when the second child arrived, they did need to make use of it. Because when the second child was born, that bedroom was needed once more. But fortunately for the mother and the newborn child, it was not them who were looking for somewhere to sleep. But this time, the father, who needed to catch up on his beauty sleep now that there was a new arrival in the house, and he decided to sleep in a different bedroom from his wife and child for a little while to get a good night's sleep. And maybe in hindsight he chose the wrong bedroom to do that in, but he chose the best bedroom to stay in. And on the very first night, he was rudely woken when he felt something clutching his throat. He awoke with a start to the sensation of something holding his throat in the darkness. There was, of course, nobody there, and he dismissed it as a nightmare. But when he had a similar experience on the second night, it became more difficult to ignore. And by the third night, when he was almost suffocated, he was compelled to take action. He sprang from the bed and looked in the mirror and looked at his neck in the mirror where he had felt the pressure, where he had felt that strangling sensation and saw on his throat a large space of skin as if it had been sucked from the centre where blood was oozing. Now, this description is very similar to the wound suffered by the child. A large space of skin as if it had been sucked and from the centre blood was oozing. The big difference here, of course, being Whereas before it had happened to a defenseless child that could do nothing to change its circumstances, now a fully grown man could take action. And while the most obvious course of action would simply be stop sleeping in that room, he could also concoct a plan to try and work out exactly what was going on. And that's exactly what he did. He decided to ask a friend to sleep in that room to see if indeed it was his imagination, or if indeed anyone sleeping in the best bedroom could expect to feel the sensation of being strangled and their blood drained from their body. Now, you do have to question the ethics of a man who would ask a friend to sleep in this room if these are the potential side effects. I mean, death is a potential side effect, but nevertheless, he does find a friend who is willing to sleep in this room. He does not give the friend the full facts, of course, because he wants to see what their experience is like unbiased. Plus, they'd probably say no, but in this case, they did spend the night there, and the friend reported experiencing exactly what the man of the house had this sensation of something supernatural going for his neck. Now, this confirmed to the man that it was the bed that was the source of his trouble, and it would appear to have been the cause of his first child's death. And so he decided to do two things, the second of which, it has to be said, is quite unexpected. But firstly, he consulted with an expert of such things, a local folklorist, not that they would have been called folklorists at the time, but he consulted a local folklorist who informed him that he was in possession of a 
vampire bed. Thanks to this expert, he now had a name with which to describe this phenomena that was tormenting him and his family. It was a vampire bed. See, I did tell you at the start, this was literally a vampire bed, a Nosferatu bed. And here we have confirmation from an expert. But the second thing this man did is the more unusual of the two, because after discovering the true nature of this bed, he decided not to destroy it. In fact, not only did he not destroy this bed, he decided to keep it there in his house. This uncanny piece of furniture, as it's described, is kept in the house as a curiosity. And in fairness, that is one heck of a curiosity to keep in your house. Going back to this idea of impressing guests, well, nothing's going to impress them more than a bed that kills people by sucking blood out of their neck. And I'm sure many of you will be familiar with the, uh, the Victorian concept of the cabinets of curiosities. Well, this is a heck of a lot better than showing people a stuffed dodo or a, or a Fiji mermaid, maybe. Although, and maybe I'm overthinking this. Well, I'm definitely overthinking this. But how you would demonstrate this to people, I don't know. Because to the eye, by all accounts, it looks like a very nice four-poster bed. It doesn't look like it's... I mean, it's not... It's not covered in blood with fangs or anything. It looks like a nice bed. And so the only way you can show that it's a vampire bed is by having somebody sleep in it. And we all know that does not end well. But anyway, that's something we can all think about afterwards. Because that curious point, that curious conundrum does bring us to the end of this particular tale. And it does present us with a more important question, a more pressing question with which to leave you with. Because frustratingly, as with many of these old tales, we don't know exactly where in Cardiff these events took place. In fact, I say exactly, we don't know anywhere. All we know is somewhere in Cardiff. And that house, in theory, could still be standing today. And that begs the question, if he did not destroy the vampire bed, is it still somewhere in Cardiff today? If so, is it still in somebody's best bedroom, just waiting to suck the blood of an unsuspecting victim, an unsuspecting visitor, be they royal or otherwise? Well, I guess we might never know. But on that blood-curdling cliffhanger, so ends another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. As mentioned during that shameless plug at the start, this tale, this dark folkloric account, is taken from my new book, Paranormal Cardiff, which, depending on when you're listening to this episode, is either coming out very soon or is available now. The publication date is November the 15th. And on the next episode of this podcast, we'll be looking at another account from Cardiff that brings things much more up to date. A much more recent case that has been described by the press as one of the biggest poltergeist cases ever. And if you don't want to miss that episode or any of the other episodes I've got coming up and you haven't already, be sure to press the subscribe button 
and you will never miss an episode ever. If you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. And as well as this podcast, I've also written a number of books about similar weird and wonderful subjects that are available from all good bookshops, offline and on. Including, of course, my new book, Paranormal Cardiff. And on that final self-promoting note, it just leaves me to say thank you so much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember, if you were thinking of booking an Airbnb in Cardiff, I would highly recommend picking one with a plush, modern, 21st century bed. Unless, of course, you are looking to join the children of the night. Until next time, no star. Thank you.